Hello, and welcome to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. I'm the Ryan half of Ryan and Brian, and this is episode number 17. This week, we are talking about symbolism in the Gospel of John. Both Brian and I read a book called Symbolism in the Fourth Gospel by Craig Kester. Uh, And so in this episode, we use that book as a framework to talk about the symbolism and images in the book of John. So it's kind of a book review, but not really a book review. Yeah. Anyway, it's all good. We talk about how some individuals are representative of larger groups, the pairing of stories contrasting light and dark, and a myriad of other things. That book really opened up my eyes to see and understand what John may have been trying to communicate, and I think you'll find it really interesting as well. Before we get started, if you're enjoying the podcast, would you mind leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or a review on Facebook? If that's not your thing, then would you just mind sharing the post about this episode or another episode you've enjoyed on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, just go out and tell your friends. That works too. Uh, We'd love to expand our audience. With all that said, let's jump right into this episode discussing the symbolism in the Gospel of John. All right, Brian, you ready to do this? I think I am. Yes. All right. So we're today we're going to talk about a book. Yep. Um, a book that's called Symbolism in the Fourth Gospel. And how do you pronounce the author's name? I'm going to mess it up. Uh, Kester. It's Craig Kester. I didn't want to say Keister. <laughs> well, you could, I could, you could say, say Craig Keister, Keister but, but it's yeah, K-O-E-S-T-E-R. That's how I would say it. It's probably... Originally, it would have been O with an umlaut over it, but I think it, I think it's Kester. I think, you know, the Anglicism, well, never mind. Yeah, anyway. Symbolism, the Fourth Gospel is, yeah, and so uh, that's the book we're going to talk about. You know, I was thinking, well, you go ahead. Yeah, well, so I think we should talk about why I read this book. Okay. And then maybe why you read this book. Okay. So, you know, we talked about, we've talked about John, because that's a big area of study for yeah, you. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time on John. Yeah, yeah and I was just a lowly undergrad right. doing other things as a music ministry major. <laughs> And chasing, I wasn't chasing Lauren. I, that's true. Uh, <laughs> very true. And, uh, you know, so I was in all these classes and so I didn't, I didn't study as much. And so as we right. talked about some of the stuff in John, it's kind of like, Brian, how do I, right. how do I attain some of this knowledge that's in your brain? <laughs> and so you recommended yeah. one of the books I pick up is Symbolism. Is this, this is the first I recommended to you on the Gospel of John. Is that right or not? It, it is. Okay. It is the first one you recommended. Yeah. So you, you're kind of like, well, what would be a good book? So, kind of so we could, and when we have these discussions on the Gospel of John, that you you would have a little bit more insight and that kind of thing. And yeah, so that was the first one I thought of. I, and I thought, you know, I was thinking we, we're doing this book discussion today and a lot of podcasts, you know, we don't want to be like every other podcast. A lot of them discuss current books. <laughs> we decided to do, to do one that's almost 20 years old. Yeah, so. we're not like those other guys. <laughs> so the old books. So anyway, yeah, you said that. And, and you know, this was one of the first books that came to mind. And, and I think I told you I debated. Kester wrote this book, and then he wrote a later one called The Word of Life, Theology of John's Gospel. I think it's a subtitle, A Theology of John's Gospel, something along those lines. I should look that up. But Just talk. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, the, they're very similar in a lot of ways. The Word of Life is a newer book, and and we'll even talk about this a little bit. Kester, the, the way he chooses to arrange his material, it does get a little bit repetitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, if you read, I, I don't think there's any need to read both of these books. But, you know, I guess I didn't even think about it when I had you read this one first, but it certainly was... I don't want to say it's instrumental in the way that I read the Gospel of John. Uh, I found myself when I read it f- first agreeing with him a lot, but it also gave me some insight into. Well, I think one particular insight that that just completely changed, kind of kind of flipped my understanding of the Gospel of John in a lot of ways. So it was 
it was a crucial book for me. And, and so that's why I kind of suggested it for the first one for you to read uh, on this. So what you, what'd you think about it? I thought it was very interesting. Right. You know, I, we kind of texted like, yeah, hey, sure. there's some stuff in here that's kind of, uh, <laughs> I got some questions right. about this. And so like for me, it was really interesting to think about with the Synoptic Gospels, right. you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, I just read those as as narratives. Right. And then which realizing, they are. Which I mean, they, they are, are yeah. And yeah. then like you can get in the book of John that there's, a, there's it is a narrative, but there's a lot of imagery in it right. as well. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think... I think I'd approach John just like I'd approach the other Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right. Okay. Which I, I don't. I don't know. You're looking at me. No, no. Crazy. I wasn't looking at you crazy. I was just thinking about what you're saying. So yeah, I, I, at some point we do need to talk about the difference between the synoptics and John. But here's the interesting thing for me about narrative, uh, do, doing a narrative approach to, to the Gospels, is. I think what we some you're always asking me about. Well, you know, how can I get some of this stuff? What you know, how did I miss some of this these kind of connections? Mm-hmm. And, and yes. that's really what we're we're trying yeah. to do here, right? And and I think for me, the narrative really helps because what you begin to realize is, <laughs> and and I'm, I'm going to say this. I don't know exactly if I can say this well, but I think a lot of times we look at the gospel writers as though they simply kind of just dictated what happened. You know. Mm-hmm. But but they were very thoughtful in the events that they chose. All of them talk about, you know, there are other things that were written. And, you know, John specifically says, you know, if, if I wrote everything that Jesus did, the world couldn't contain the books, right? Mm-hmm. So he says, I selected these things. I, I think that it shows arrangement, that he arranged them particularly for a particular purpose. We can maybe give an example or two of that later on. And I think that's true of all four Gospels. Now, John is the outlier. I mean, John is different, but I think all four of them, I think when we we read them narratively, it begins to shed light on it. And again, one of these days, we need to talk about the synoptics themselves and how do we read those? Because some people want to, they want to compare them always. You know, they always want to yes. lay Matthew and Mark side by side and look at the same account in both, which you can learn a lot by doing that. But then you also have to go back and say, why does Mark choose to give us this particular account in the way that he does? Right. Right. And, 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 and I think you can learn a lot and we'll maybe give examples again of some things that John says that's really unique. I mean, literally unique in the, in the, in the New Testament, the Bible and, uh, and yeah, some other things. So, so anyway, yeah, yeah. I think that's what we're talking so, about. So I thought today. it was a really good book. And as we get into this, you know, I want to kind of talk about what he said as a symbol in this. Okay. And so this is his definition from the book. A symbol is an, an image, an action, or a person that is understood to have transcendent significance. Right. In Johannian terms, symbols span the chasm between what is from above and what is from below. Right. Because Jesus, I mean, that's he's he's quoting there the Gospel of John, qu- quoting Jesus in the Gospel of John, where he says, you know, you are from below, but I am from above. Uh, you know, the thing is, the people he's talking to there are not understanding what he's saying. And, and so Jesus is using these symbols and these this imagery in a way that they can't understand. But then, you know, Kester's point is that the author of the Gospel of John does the same thing. John uh, uses these, these symbols. Now, here's what I think is important, and I always point this out when I suggest this book to someone, is because something symbolic does not mean it's not real, okay? In, in U.S. history, for example— uh, George Washington plays a, a very important role for us, right? We call him the father of the nation, which is a symbolic way, a metaphoric way to talk about his role. And, and there's a way that he functions symbolically in our in our worldview. That's another thing we'll, we'll come to in another time. But 
he has a function symbolic in that, but that doesn't mean he wasn't real. It doesn't mean that, you know, the things that he, you know, he really crossed the Potomac. He really, you know, did the, now the chopping down the cherry tree supposedly was false, but, but you get what I'm saying is, is even though he was a historical figure that really lived, we could go find his bones today. Um, I suppose, um, (laughs) the, uh, even though that's the case, you know, he, he, he does have this kind of larger than life role in, in a way. And so John does this with, with these accounts, he, he uses them in order to, to teach and to, to kind of show us what Jesus was teaching really, I think in a lot of ways. So, yeah. Yeah. But one of the things in the first third of the book, which is, um, he talks about representative figures. And mm-hmm. so, uh, one of the things that really stood out to me is it talking about like people who meet Jesus. Right. And, Talking about this, you know, you you spoke earlier about how John, when he wrote this, chose things very specifically in a right. specific order. And so one of the things that the first sections he talks about is Nicodemus. Right. And then chapter three. Chapter three. And then it's the woman at the well in chapter, chapter four. four. Mm-hmm. What was interesting to me as we as he was making the point in this book is that the language in both of these cases, he's making the case that these people were representative sure. of another people. Okay. Of, of a, of a larger, of group a larger of group. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, I think, I think you see that. I think, I think Nicodemus, well, there's a couple of things I think you're, you're wanting to, to talk about here, but the, the representative figures, you know, I find those two very fascinating and, and I would always do this in class. In fact, this, I'll say to the listener, this might be something you want to stop and do. It's very interesting to read Nicodemus, the account of Nicodemus in chapter three, and then the, the account of the woman at the well in chapter four, and, and I used to have my students do this when I was teaching the gospel of John, and I would have them note all of the similarities and all of the differences that they notice in those two accounts. Yes. And it, this is an example when you talk about arrangement. I think that John has intentionally laid these two side by side in order to say something about who it is that really begins to understand Jesus and, and who it is that's missing the point about who Jesus is. You might remember Nicodemus was a leader of the of the Jews, and yep. gosh, we'll have I, we don't have time to talk about that right now. But yep. the, the word is in Greek is eudaioi, uh, the word that we translate as Jews. Uh, some people translate as Judeans, eudaioi, right? It's the it's the people of the of the place of Judea, and and you know I'll just say this that Jew when we use the term Jew in the first century, we've talked about this in some other places. First of all, it's not talking about a monolithic, you know, like one belief kind of group. But the other thing is it's not the same that we would use that word today. And so I think we have to be very careful there. There's some yes. who've, who've accused, for example, John of being anti-Semitic because of the way that he talks about the Jews as the as the enemies. And, and I'll, I'll say in a horrible way, the gospel of John was used during the time leading up to the Nazi regime in, in Germany before that period of time and through it to, you know, to essentially, essentially justify some of the atrocities against the Jewish people in that, in that period of time. But when John uses this, we, we've got to really ask ourselves the question, who's, who's he referring to? So here, here's Nicodemus, the leader of the Jews. And you might remember later on during their discourse, and again, it's one of these back and forth, John loves discourses. In, in Matthew, Jesus speaks, <laughs> right? Yes. I don't know if you can just flip through the Gospels and see this. If you flip through the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, there, if you have a red letter Bible, there are these large sections of red. But if you flip through the Gospel of John, I always say it's red, black, red, black, because Jesus is in these discussions with people. That's what John is, is recording discourses. And, and so he gets into this discourse with Nicodemus, 
And, and one of the interesting things he says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. And, and so there's an irony there. There's, right. you know, that's another thing that, that I think John is using is irony. Here's another thing that you got to think. Here's a, a leader of the Jewish people who comes to Jesus and calls him rabbi, which is a huge word in the gospel of John. Rabbi is, is, is a word that is full of meaning and, and this kind of thing. And so, so that whole thing you need to read in that way. But now when you talk about them as representative characters, what's interesting is that many times the Gospel of John, uh, you see a character switch from the singular to the plural. Yes. This was one, this was one of the things that yeah. really stuck out to me yeah. in, in, in this. Yeah. And this is one of those examples when you're always asking, you know, making fun of me about Greek and that kind of I'm thing. I'm not making fun of you. <laughs> I'm just saying I know nothing. The, this is one of those things. In, here's a problem we have in English. I'll go on, go on a rant about this another day. <laughs> okay. We used to have two different words for, I'm going to get a little grammatical here. Okay. Get ready for Uh-oh. everybody. So we used to have two different words for the second person pronouns in English for the singular and the plural. Okay. You and, and ye or thou and thee were a way for us to talk about plural and singular, but we have collapsed those into one. And so we simply say you, and I say, unless, unless you're part of my wife's people, my wife, <laughs> my wife is from Eastern Kentucky and she makes these things very clear or Eastern Tennessee would be a yes. similar, maybe Virginia. I don't know. But in most parts of the United States, when we say you, well, I guess Cincinnati is used, but we use the word you for both singular and plural. So if I say, are you coming to, you know, are, like, okay, we're having dinner tonight, Ryan, are you coming? If I'm saying, are you and Lauren coming? Or if I'm saying, are you coming? I say it the same way. Are you coming? Now, my wife's people use the distinction, all y'all for plural, <laughs> which is helpful. It, it is helpful. And, uh, you know, if it's interesting. This is one of those examples. If you read the King James version, you can still tell the difference between singular and plural. But John... You'll have people say, you know, you'll have Nicodemus talking along. And then, uh, in fact, at the beginning of his discourse, if I recall correctly, I'm not looking at it. I probably should. But he says something to the effect, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, right? Doesn't he say something like that or sent from God? And so he he uses the plural there. So he's speaking not only for himself, but he's speaking on behalf of other people as well. And what's really interesting is when Jesus answers, he says, we know about those things that we have seen. And uh, so, especially the Gospel of John, and I don't know exactly what to do with this. I, I have some suspicions. But especially in the Gospel of John, verbs that have to do with knowing or seeing or thinking, testifying, all are usually in the plural. So we know, for example. Uh, and so that's, I think, what you're talking about when you have these representative, you know, Nicodemus isn't just speaking for himself, if you will, but he's kind of representing others who are similar to him. Now, that could be Jewish leaders, or it could be later in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, uh, there's a specific reference to those who believed in Jesus. Again, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but uh, many, even among uh, even among the Jewish leaders, believed in him. This is the last half of John chapter 12, 37 or something like that. He says, um, he says even, even many among the Jewish leaders believed in him, yet they would not do so publicly because they were, they, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God, something to that effect, mm-hmm. you know, send in your letters of correction later on. But, <laughs> but, um, 
you know, he could be representing those Jewish leaders. And he's coming, he's kind of mm-hmm. coming to Jesus to ask him these questions that he has about what, and it's funny because Jesus answers a question. I always, when I'm teaching this, I always say Jesus answers a question that's never asked here. Um, because Nicodemus never gets around to asking a question. Then Jesus starts talking about what what's necessary in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, which is the only place, by the way, in the, in the gospel of John, uh, one of the few places I'd have to look, but, uh, the, the kingdom language is not very big in the gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Eternal life is, but kingdoms are very seldom used, but it is used here. So he begins to answer that question. I have another suspicion that it's kind of a weird suspicion about the Nicodemus, but we'll talk about that another time maybe, but your weird suspicions. We'll talk about this another time. <laughs> well, I, we don't have no, let's not talk about it. There's there's no way to prove this, okay? Oh, well, we were going to do another time. Oh, it's it's not long enough to uh, do a whole episode. Okay, on. talk, talk. So, you remember this other character we have in the Synoptic Gospels called the rich young ruler? Yes. So, here you have a ruler of the Jews and this rich young ruler, and of course, what was the rich young ruler's question? What How must I, I what must I do to be saved? All right, or to to obtain eternal life, right? Or to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus answers here the question that that the rich young ruler asks. It makes me wonder if Nicodemus, if there's some connection here, if they're the same person or something along those lines. I don't know. Anyway, that's like I said, there's no way to prove that. That's just that's just no no extra charge for that. That's just yeah. something I'm throwing out there. But then you have the Samaritan woman where mm-hmm. you have a very similar kind of uh, context. And 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 that's, you know, kind of ties back to when we talked about John 14. We already kind of talked about this, about where sure. are they going to worship, that it yeah. started with this, and this is one of the things he brings out the book, a it theme. usually starts yeah. with a theme, it starts with an individual, yeah. an individual opening a question, and then the context moves larger yep. and larger yep. and larger. So it moved from just, you know, she is a as a Samaritan and Jesus is a Jew, then it mm-hmm. moved into her personal life, right? Kind of, you know, kind of context moved a little bit larger, then it was about where do we worship, right? and then as you pull in the townspeople, then as she runs back and says... Right, uh, you know he's here. You know we, the Messiah is here, and you know, and they've crowned him king of the king of the world, king of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and that, that she's representative, and the Samaritan people are representative of the world. Right, right. That and, it's not just a story of her, but it's a story about yeah. her in the context she's symbolizing, and those people are symbolizing just, something greater. Just another example. Of what you're saying here is when when she asked him that question about where where should we worship, she uses the plural there. You Jews say the place we should worship is in you know, in Jerusalem and on Mount Zion. And, uh, you know, we, plural, worship on this mountain. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You know, so there again is that idea of the the, the plural. And uh, yeah, so yeah, she goes and the whole whole village comes out to, to, to meet her. So this idea of the Samaritans and, and, you know, the Jesus is not simply coming to the, to the Jewish people later on, King is used again. Of course, king is a is a is a word that's used several in several contexts. Chapter six, for example. But then I'm thinking of the a case when he's before Pilate. Remember, and there's that whole question about are you the king of the Jews? And yes. and you know, Jesus doesn't say yes because he he says, you know, really I'm the king of all of those who are on the side of truth. You know, it's a much bigger thing. My kingdom is not of this world, he says to Pilate. And so Pilate's like, aha, you are a king then. And and Jesus says, well, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason, I came into the world that all who are on the side of truth should listen to me, right? I, I came to testify to the truth. And so so here's that, you know, that, like you said, the larger context. So, yeah. Yeah, so that that was really interesting. And, and in the book, he goes through several other cases talking about the royal official from Capernaum yeah. mm-hmm. coming to have the sick, yep. uh, sick son, which is very interesting. The invalid, 
you know, and just sure. it, it, coming into some of this stuff. And one of the things he pointed out is there seems to be in the book of John, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I read this book just this last week. So I'm Kest- still processing. Kester's book, right? Yes, Kester's book. You read Gospel John previously. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, that's true. Yes. Um, so I'm still processing, correlating right. how I put all right. this together. Uh, but there's a lot in the Gospel of John about that believing without seeing, without right. sight. You know, that Jesus makes this comment like, you've seen all these miracles and still you, don't, you believe. don't believe. Chapter 12. Chapter mm-hmm. 12. And that there's a lot in the Gospel of John about believing without sight. Right. Yeah. Many of so the, the pur- blind man that was that was healed. Right. Chapter nine. The the purpose statement of the Gospel of John is in John chapter twenty verses thirty through thirty one. And J- John says, you know, there are many other things that Jesus did. Listen to this in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He, so he says he did these things in their presence. Right. The, they were they were witnesses to these things. But these have been written, he says, so that you might believe that. I, I would read it that the Messiah is Jesus. And there's a reason in the Greek language that, that we would say that the Christ is Jesus. In other words, he's writing to people who are questioning who is the Messiah. You know, the temple's gone. You know, we, we're not sure what's happening now. It seems like Rome has the upper hand. Basically, John says, I'm going to make the case that the Messiah is Jesus, none other than Jesus of Nazareth, right? So that that you might believe that that the Messiah is Jesus. We sometimes, some translations will say Jesus is the Messiah or Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you might have life uh, in his name. So that's the purpose statement of the Gospel of John. Now, what's really interesting about that is it follows immediately. You remember what account is just before that? I don't. It's the account we call Doubting Thomas. Mm, yes. So Thomas has said, <laughs> and, and we don't connect this. And here's the reason is, is if you look at, go look in your Bibles now, you know, most of your English translations are going to separate chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, from what comes just before it. Most of them are going to have a header there that talks something about, you know, the reason John wrote or something like that, purpose statement of the gospel, something like that. But if you look at the account just before that of Thomas, you know, twice already, Jesus has appeared, or I'm sorry, I should say already once, Jesus has appeared to the, to the 11. Well, technically the 10, right? Because Judas is gone now. Thomas is Thomas not, is not present the first yes. time. And so here are the 10. And the 10 come to Thomas and they say to him, we have seen Jesus. He's risen from the dead. And you know what Thomas says? We call him doubting Thomas. I always say that's not the right word. He's disbelieving Thomas. L- literally. So so we have a in English, if we want to negate something, we put an un in front of it, like unless. Yeah. I was gonna say unfriend. Yeah. So un uh, you know, whatever. We we put an un to make it opposite. And you you have a thing in the in Greek called the alpha privative. You put an a in the beginning of it. Uh, we do it in some some uh, English words that we've borrowed from the Greek. But anyway, the word to believe is pistuo. To to believe and that's the verb in Greek is pistuo. And and here's what Thomas really says. He says, "I will," and he uses a pistuo. I will never believe. He uses a strong form. May may apistuo. I will never believe. Unless I see for myself, unless I unless I touch his hands, touch the nail prints in his hand, touch the the you know the thrust. Literally, he uses the word "bolo" here. Thrust my hand in his side. The King James version, which is a good good translation there. You know, unless I see for myself, I will never believe. So Jesus appears to him, and he says to him, Thomas, see the nail prints in my hand. 
thrust your hand in my side, right? <laughs> Put your fingers in the nail prints on my hand. He invite he basically, which is kind of a cool thing. Jesus says, I'll give you the evidence that you need in order to believe. And and, and Thomas, of course, says, My Lord and my God. You know, he immediately he responds. And then Jesus says this. He says, you know, good, you 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 believe now having seen. Blessed are those who will believe without having seen. And then John goes immediately into many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. So here's the point. He's saying Thomas did not believe the testimony of his close friends, right? Even, even though there here are 10 of his close, he's been, he's been, you know, wandering around Galilee in the Judean wilderness with them for three years now, perhaps. You know, it'd be one thing, right, Ryan, if one person came to you and said, hey, I saw uh, someone who raised from the dead. If one of your friends, you might think, well, it's a prank, right? Or or if two of them, what, what if 10 of your closest friends came to you and says, yes, we saw him. He is risen from the dead. You know, at some point, your disbelief is going to be, how to say this, it's going to be something that you're doing. <laughs> Right, right. You know, unless you think all your friends are getting together to pull a pretty elaborate prank, which this one would be, to be frank, in poor taste. Right? We've seen Jesus. You know, (laughs) he's risen from the dead. You know, ha ha, got you, Thomas. Worst worst joke, right? Ever. But here is ten of his closest friends telling him we've seen Jesus raised from the dead, and and yet Thomas, he doesn't just say, "Oh, I don't believe." He says, "I will never believe unless I see for myself." So. Basically, what John is doing, and this is this, I think, helps overall. And I know we're getting away from the book book discussion. But, it's good though. It's good. But I think I think what we're you know what he's doing is he's really saying you guys, Jesus is calling you blessed if you believe in him on the basis of the testimony of these people who saw these things themselves. They they were there. We were present. You know, especially John, he he puts himself present. We'll talk about this another day. The beloved disciple and what role that plays. Kester talks about that, the the role of the beloved disciple as an ideal character. So here's what, I'm going to tell you this. Did you have anything you wanted to say in response to that? <laughs> Any questions? Well, I was going to say some Greek, but you've got another thought in your mind. So go ahead and run with it. I'll just set this yeah, one for, up. Before I forget it. Yeah. I thought I might say why Kester's, you know, I, I I didn't even think about this actively when I when I told you you should read this book first. But Kester's book was pretty important for me. I don't know that it was the most important early book on the Gospel of John that I read, but it was a pretty important one. Uh, and I can remember reading it. And in fact, I was looking over my copy. I have a hard copy. You know, this is back when we used to have hard copies of books. And, and I was looking at it, and I think I read it three times, you know, judging by the underlining. And, and at the uh, one of the things I try to do on the back, in the back of the book, usually there's a fly leaf or whatever. I usually try to write my thoughts. And so three different times I wrote some different notes about what he did. And I think this this book was pretty important about how I approach the Gospel of John. Now, I, I, there are other books on, on reading the Gospel of John as narrative that I looked at before this one, but there was something about Kester's presentation that really helped me catch a hold of it. Now, I told you, Kester's not a commentary. So if you're looking for... Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that I kind of appreciated about yeah. it as well. You know, we talked about it getting a little repeti- repetitive, but he he puts it thematically, yeah. breaks things up. And it's, uh, you know, if you ever are considering reading this, it's an easy read. It like, is. I'm not, I am, as you know, I'm not a Greek, <laughs> I'm not a Greek scholar. Right. You know, I don't know all these, uh, some of the technical pieces of this, but it's, I mean, it's a pretty yeah. clearly explained position. Yeah. You know, looking at the scripture, 
looking at, uh, talking about the different aspects of it. And the reason it is repetitive, because just like, as you were talking about yeah. again, like when you're talking about Nicodemus and the woman at the well, that there are differences in the people that are talking. But one of the things he also talks about is Jesus says he's the light of the world. Right. And talking about the imagery of dark and light. And light. Mm-hmm. And so in another section of the book where he's talking about the imagery of dark and light, he comes back to yeah. the Nicodemus and the woman at the well, like Nicodemus came at night. Woman at the well is during the it, day. Well, not yeah, noon, right? Noon, six, like sixth the, hour, yeah, right. So, so yeah, it's it. That's one of the contrasts you you find between those two things. So yeah, you, you that's what I was going to say is you you get the re- and it's funny you 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 said repetitive and in the back of my book I was like I said I try to write some notes and and one of the words was this he is somewhat re- repetitive and. <laughs> And the reason, but it is, it's it's for the purpose. He's he's really tracing themes. If he had gone verse by verse, it, it wouldn't you wouldn't have the repetition. But you also, I think, would miss some of the connections that he draws out. And yes. that's what I really like. You you begin to see why John, again, as narrative, is writing with these themes in mind, with these different connections. We've talked about the temple theme, and we'll talk about it again, I'm sure, in the Gospel of John. But the theme of light and darkness, the use of characters. All of these are are different ways that um, or different themes that John uses in in what he's doing, and and he really I think really highlights those well. And I, you know I use this in undergraduate. I would use this for sophomores or juniors, that kind of thing, with no problem. And uh, you know most of them really appreciated the book. I found some real insights. Maybe in a minute I'll tell you the. I think there was one big insight that I received from this book. Uh, then I'll come back to that in just a minute. One that's really changed the way that I think about the Gospel of John. But what else are you going to say about the book? Yeah, I, 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 it for me. I mean, it also gives some helpful background information as we're talking sure. about. You know, some of the things for me is talking about some of the feasts right. that, that have happened. Again, I think one of the things that was really profound for me is talking about the imagery of the light. Yeah, and talking about uh, the feast of booths. Yeah, and Tabern- that tabernacles or booths. booths I was yeah. I always pronounce that very. I have to. I'm, I always overpronounce booths because there was one time I was teaching the Gospel of John and I got on the test. Somebody said the Feast of Booze. Oh and wow! Like, and so I'm always <laughs> that's a totally I'm always different. Very, feast. That's a very different feast. Not that there was not some booze, booze. consumed at Tabernacles, but it is a feast feast of booths. Booths because they would build these tabernacles or these booths that they would go. It's a fall festival, kind and, of, and it's about them coming out yeah, of the wilderness. That, absolutely, that, that God led them out of the wilderness. And one of the things was is that. In the evening, in the yeah. temple, they would light very bright lamps. Four different lamps, according to burning, Jos- burning the undergarments. Yep. of the of the priests. According to Josephus, they were they they would basically the way Josephus described it is every square in Jerusalem would be made like daylight. These were such big candles that were burned, and the and, temple was reflecting the right, light coming out. Right, and it's in that context that Jesus says. Mm-hmm. I am, I am the, the light, light of the, the world. world. Mm-hmm. And so like the imagery that a Jew would have, or, yeah. you know, anyone that knew cultural context, sure. like they would have said, like Jesus is juxtaposing himself to yep. this. Oh, this is, this is light. And right. Jesus is saying, no, 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 I am the light of the world. He's the, the, the torch that's lighting everything. Exactly. Right. And, and so, yeah, again, the temple, so you get the temple there, right? Yes. Because that's what they're looking to for the light. You said the wilderness wanderings. You you'll remember the story in in uh, in Exodus Numbers that that as as the tabernacle moved right the tabernacle yep. you know that later the temple as the tabernacle moved God's glory was seen in a pillar of fire by night and a, and a pillar of smoke by day. So that's what they're recreating in doing this. Yes, and uh, yeah, so yeah, Jesus is using that imagery. And again, you know, 
it's not like that's some kind of hidden thing. You know, you're always talking about, how could I have seen this? You know, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, I'm like a crotchety old man. Why did you tell me about this when I was? But, you know, the, uh, the, the imagery is there for someone who would have been familiar. And again, I think he's writing. I, I think John is writing not long after the destruction of the temple, when when this would have still been a living memory in people's minds. And I think he's primarily writing to people who are wondering, what do we do now that the temple's gone? So who who would that be, right? That's that's the people who went there to worship. I, I think that's who he's writing for. And and so when, yeah, they would have, they, you know, these are people when he he talks about tabernacles would have, the same way if I talked about a Thanksgiving feast to you. Now, if I was teaching in, I don't know, Ghana, I might have to explain what a Thanksgiving feast is, right? But if I just started a story with, well, it was one Thanksgiving and, you know, this happened, from your experience, you would you would think, you know, sights and sounds and smells. I, I mean, you know, John did not have to explain all that because that would have been in their living memory. So that's, you know, when I talk about us, Spending time learning culture and history, the culture and history and language of the first century, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about because, you know, that's the kind of images that they would have had in their mind. So uh, go ahead. Yeah. Some of those things. And then, you know, we talked about this, I think, in the intertestamental about Feast of Dedication, which is also Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. And that's when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And shepherd is an image of... A leader. leader. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think those were really instructive for me. We'd already talked about the shepherd piece, but going back and reading some of this and seeing some of these, again, that there's these contrasts, that, yep. that there's very intentional, that Jesus is making things very intentional, yep. uh, and when he's saying things and what's going on in the context. And so I think, for me, this book was really um, opened up, John, a little yeah. bit to, to, to be read in it, like to see those things. Because yeah. I think it's sometimes we're just reading like, what did Jesus say? But there's, again, we always come back to this nuance. How did he say it? What are the word like? It's right. all like when we moved from you to all y'all, right? <laughs> like, you know, that was one of the things I told you and you're yeah. like, you're not going to like this. I think he does this a lot. Right. Uh, when I said like, why isn't it not all y'all right. in all the spots? And so, well, you know, you just said you're not going to like this because that happens a lot because it's this it's blown it up and so I really enjoyed the book. I think yeah. there's some things I don't know if you want to talk about the community thing. Do you want to talk about know. that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the things that Kester does do that I, I kind of disagree with, and this is actually a pretty big deal. I don't know how important this is to people, but if here's the thing I'll say: if you pick up a commentary, I always say this when I'm teaching the Gospel of John: if you pick up a commentary on the Gospel of John that was written anywhere between the 19 mid-1970s up to around 2000, more than likely you're going to get a large discussion in the introduction on what they call the Johannine community. I don't know if it'd ever be worth us talking about why that's the case, but there was a really influential book, a book that I think had too much influence, in my opinion, uh, by a guy by the name of John Lewis Martin that dealt with this idea. He called it History and Theology of the Fourth Gospel, the name of his book, and it was it was hugely influential. But one of the things that he said is that we really don't have in the Gospel of John a story about Jesus. What we have is a story about a later community they call the Johannine community. In other words, a a community of Christians that lived in the later part of the first century who are reading their own community history back into the life of Jesus. So in these places where they use the plural, for example, like you've been talking about, you know, that's why Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, 
I, I know the things that I have seen. He says, we know the things we've seen because Jesus represents in these commentators' minds the Johannian community. So again, the, the problem I always had with that is that that makes the Gospel of John not, a his, his, not historical in, in any kind of normal sense of that word. I know there are some people who'd quibble with my use of normal sense of that word, but th- this idea that it's not about Jesus at all, but it's really about this community of, of believers. And it gets, it gets ridiculous. There, uh, there's one commentary in particular that I always use as the height of this where you know, every story becomes a stage in the life of the Johannine community. So the story of the Samaritan woman, well, there's a period of time that the Johannine community had to leave Judea because of persecution. And so they lived in Samaria for a period of time. And that's what that story is about. You know, it's just, yes. it just gets to this. So what really became became ridiculous is that there's this, there's this point at which you begin to say, you can, you can tell me about the history of this community that there's no evidence for other than what you're reading from the text or you're you know you're you're extrapolating mm-hmm. here there's no evidence for this community and you can tell me more about the history of that than you can what the gospel of John actually purports to say and so there there became kind of a backlash myself and some others kind of around the turn of the century uh, you know turn of the last millennium a little bit before Begin to react against this, and so I think pretty much it's it's. I don't know if it's been completely rejected, but I would say I, I don't. It's not nearly as common as it was for those thirty years. I I think there was some particular things that derailed kind of the whole understanding of the of the Gospel of John for for that period of time among among scholars at least. You know, in fact, I think I told you I, I wrote a chapter once that, about this that I. I I kind of titled the the emperor has no clothes, right? It's like <laughs> you guys are you guys are building these elaborate theories on these really you know minuscule pieces of evidence. So anyway, Kester does have a little bit of that in there. He's not as bad as some, but uh, you know I pretty much I, I don't I don't necessarily accept that. I kind of I kind of reject that, and and not only myself but others and and some good writers now, good thinkers on the Gospel of John, much better than I, who who've kind of moved. In, in a way that I think is more helpful than understanding the Johannine community. So the only reason I say that is if you pick up a commentary, just be careful about that kind of stuff. There's some really good commentaries out there that still, they're good commentaries in other ways, but they still have that problem. Well, I maybe we should it. make a list of like good commentaries. Sure. Yeah, it'll be uh, good sometime. Yeah, we could probably put it on a website or yeah. something. So yeah, that'd be a good idea. So we've kind of talked around some of the themes that are in the sure. book, and I just want to kind of give like maybe my closing thoughts on sure. what I think about that. I think it's a great book. Right. You know, I think it's a book that if you've studied scripture and you've obviously, hopefully you've read the gospel of John, if you're listening to this, if you haven't, go read it. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think it's a good book. Like if you're wanting to go a little bit deeper level into the gospel of John, it, I think it will help you maybe make some connections in there to, to think about it. And I think you know, as you kind of alluded to this, and I and we had a phone call about this, and I said, Brian, is is this like what I call like a Gnostic knowledge? Like it's this hidden knowledge. And right. as you kind of alluded to, it's like, no, this was written in a particular context, yeah. and people would have made these connections. Absolutely, we're just on the outside of that. We're right. you know, two thousand years on the other side of it, and so yeah. I think this book helps tie back right. into some of that cultural context, into some of that imagery that they would sure. have seen in that. And so it's it's not one you're going to find at Barnes and Noble or right. are there brilliant bookstores anymore? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, not that it, I know of. Yeah. Anyway, so I found mine on Amazon. You can find it on Christian Books. It's about sure. thirty two dollars. It's Is also it, not a it's not a cheap book. Right. Was uh, it? Do they have a Kindle version or do you know? 
Ah, uh, that's a great question. Yeah. I like the hard copy. Well, yeah, you, know, you can look. You well, can look we'll, it up. we'll put a link to it in there. But I, I think it's a great book if you're it interested is. in the Gospel of John yeah, and it, and it, seeing some of the the nuance of, that's in there that you may not just see otherwise. Yeah, and 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 kind of an in, in, introductory level, uh, you know, kind of you know, kind of approach to it too. So well, I was going to say, you know, I said I was going to say one thing about what, what I found particularly helpful is, yes. is really this, Kester was the first one that introduced me to this idea of misunderstandings in the Gospel of John and, and the purpose that they serve. And it's a theme, right? There are almost everything Jesus says to a group or an individual, they misunderstand. So let me give you some examples. John 2, he's in the temple. You kind of understand why, but Right, yes. he says. He says, "Destroy this temple, or you build it in three days." And they're all like, "Let's take it us forty six years to build this temple." Right? <laughs> they and, said it just uh, like just that. like that. <laughs> it's taking us forty time. Why, <laughs> wise guy? <laughs> and uh, and of course, John says for the reader, he takes us. And and so here's the point: misunderstandings in the Gospel of John always take us to a deeper level of understanding, and, and we kind of become insiders there. Right? So he says kind of takes us aside, John does. the If we're using there, we say the narrator takes us aside, and he says to us, he was talking about the temple of his body. And we're like, because we, we know the outlines of Jesus' life at this point. I, I think it's I think this is written for people who knew the general outline of the, of, of the life of Jesus. And I can show you a couple examples why another day. But, but he says, he was talking about his body, and we're like, oh, okay, I get it. And then, you know, later, uh, well, the woman at the well, you know, he, he says, I can give you water, to, to drink that you'll never thirst again. And they're sitting there by a well, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, she's like, are you are you greater than... No, she didn't say the same way. She said, <laughs> are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Uh, you, you've got... No, this well's deep and you've got nothing to draw from, right? And, and so she's thinking physical water. And that's the misunderstandings are typically that Jesus is talking about a spiritual... He's using a symbol or an image and they're taking it literally, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so... He, you know, he's like, no, the 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 water that I give, you know, is a different kind. It, it, it's about eternal life, right? Uh, Nicodemus in chapter three, you remember that? He said, um, unless a man is born, and there's a play on words here that I can't really spend time on right now, but Anathan from above or again, and and Nicodemus immediately says, well, how can I, how can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so he's thinking physical birth, and Jesus says, no, I, I'm talking about spiritual birth. He says, he says, you know, the spirit moves where it wills, and he uses wind, in fact, kind of there. And uh, so all of these different times, uh, chapter six, the, the bread of life stuff, where he says, I am the bread that's come down from heaven. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they're like, What? You know, it's like, <laughs> what are you talking Things about? Things are going weird here, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. You got you to remember that's uh, in in chapter in verse sixty six. There it says, it says many disciples um, uh, turned back and no longer they followed him away. because yeah. of how difficult this teaching was. Right. So there are these misunderstandings, and Kester was the first one to show me that really what he's doing is he's kind of elevating people's understanding. The reader is going, oh, okay, I get what he's saying here. You know, mm-hmm. it's taking us into another level of the understanding. The bread's another level. Exactly. And so so that is was huge in, in thinking about the Gospel of John differently and noticing those kind of things, the misunderstandings. And a lot of people have written on the misunderstandings, but, but Kester was really, for me, the first one that I read that really, really brought that home and made me see just the Gospel of John a whole different way. And so I'll always kind of be, be grateful to him for that. Now, let me, let me respond a little bit to what you said about, um, and, and this will kind of bring this idea of symbol too. You said, you know, that, that we're reading this thing that is written in a different culture, different history, different time. Just to give another example. So, so I think it was Umberto 
Echo. I can't remember who. So, one one of the people who write on linguistics talked about this that that we have to be equal to reading a book, right? So there are certain requirements for us to read a book. It's even true of Shakespeare, right? Now Shakespeare wrote in English of of a form, right? <laughs> but we're separated. Yeah. We're separated from him culturally uh, and, and those kind of things. We can understand Shakespeare though, but it takes a little work. And even if you read Shakespeare, who wrote in our language. And and much he's much closer to our own time than let's say the time of the uh, of, of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. You know, we usually need to look at the footnotes, right, to see kind of what's going on there. He uses words that we no longer use. He he uses some forms. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. We we have to do a little bit of digging, a little bit of work to really understand what's going on in Romeo and Juliet, for example, this right. kind of thing. And so, um, it's the same with you know Goethe or or. Faust or, or whomever we're reading, right? Mm-hmm. We have to think about language and culture and history, uh, and it's it's no different than than the than the Bible. And let me say one more thing then about symbol. Uh, another day we're going to talk about worldview. We've, yes. we've used the term worldview before. Uh, the way I understand worldview, symbol is an important aspect of that. A symbol, uh, you know. So so you heard earlier Kester's definition of a symbol, I would say a symbol is a, is a visible representation of a belief is one of the ways to put it. It's, it's some visible or, you know, for him, it's kind of a literary sign that points toward something mm-hmm. else, kind of stands in place of that other thing. So flags are symbols. Most countries have symbols like eagles, for example, or if you, if you look at a dollar bill, there are symbols all over it, you know. That, Illuminati. <laughs> Great. There's something on the back of the. Of the well, uh, now this podcast just got flagged. So, <laughs> oh, God. The, <laughs> there's the all seeing eye. The all seeing eye, man. Seeing and I saw National Treasure. Yeah, I saw okay, Nicholas okay, Cage. Okay. Blew all yeah. that open. I'll tell you one time why, why National Treasure was ruined for me. But anyway. The yeah the this the pyramid the the words there novum seculorum mm-hmm. um, you know the the all all these kind of things are symbols and even the dollar bill some people point out is a symbol itself if you go to Washington D.C. the Washington Monument Abraham Lincoln the the Lincoln Memorial all these are symbols so that's one of the aspects of a worldview when we talk about worldview I think symbol has has an important place and I think that's another reason this book is important it helps us see a part of the worldview of the people who were listening to this book in in the first century, the very first readers, we would say, or listeners probably, you know, it's probably being read to them. They were listening for these cues. They were, they were thinking about, again, their own history and their own culture. Uh, you know, shepherd for them would be not something they'd have to look up on Wikipedia. You know, that would be, you know, they would know, you know, George down the street, who's, who's a shepherd, uh, not a very good shepherd, but you know, um, <laughs> So, so those kind of, you know, those kind of um, symbols, I think, help get us into the culture. So that's the only, only other thing I was going to say about that. Yeah. Well, there's a lot, again, back to the book, Symbolism in the Fourth Gospel. Good mm-hmm. stuff. I would read it. Yeah. Yeah. Read it. Yeah. <laughs> or three times. Or just listen to this podcast. We just basically gave you everything. <laughs> well, there I don't know. There's a lot more there. Yeah. There's a lot more there. It's a joke, Brian. Yeah. yeah. Joke. Anyway, check out the book. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Next week, Brian and I are talking about all of the Gospels, not just John. That's right. We're talking about all of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, If you haven't noticed, they all tell the story of Jesus, but in a little bit different ways that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of similarities. uh, And John is a little bit different. And so we explore the similarities and differences in the Gospels 
and how we should understand and think about those differences. We hope you'll join us for that conversation. You can find show notes, links, and more at thebiblebistro.com, as well as sign up for our email newsletter to stay in touch, but also, but also to get some exclusive content we are working on. Yes, we are working on exclusive content just for those who sign up to our newsletter. Uh, So if you're listening to the podcast, I'm assuming you like what we're saying or what Brian's saying. I'm just flavor in there. Uh, But uh, we're producing some stuff. And so we think you'll like it. So go ahead to our website and sign up for that email newsletter. You can find us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Bible Bistro. And as always, you can subscribe to us on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You just need to search for Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Thanks so much for listening. We will talk to you next Tuesday.